Blog Talk Radio. This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Finally, a global program specifically for wealthy, philanthropic women who are humble, gracious leaders. Sylvia Global's host, Gil Sylvia, invites you to join her in these conversations with first ladies of nations, households, business, and communities. Trustworthy, live conversations with women from around the globe provides a place for your voice to connect with women of integrity, passion, and purpose. Now, here's your host, Gail Sylvia. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here with us today, especially on this wonderful special occasion of Thanksgiving in Canada. My very special guest is Mary A. Titlin. Uh, Mary A. Titlin is the founder of the Mary A. Titlin Charitable Foundation. This is a charitable organization designed to fund sustainable development projects around the world. Through her generosity and that of many of her supporters, she funds, operates, and participates in a wide range of projects and offers the same opportunities for donors and volunteers to be engaged in this global work. Mary, thank you so much for being here. How are you? Happy Thanksgiving, friend. (laughs) I'm very appreciative of you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I really am. I'm very thankful um, to have met you. We've met through Women Moving Millions recently, and I think like many of our sister friends in the um, WMM community, there's a, you know, there's a special connection that's driven around the passions of our heart, especially uh, for women and girls, but our big, bold giving and our fearless, you know, um, ability to dream big and to make it happen and to work with those who aspire to do the same. What drew you to WMM? Uh, pardon me? What attracted you to uh, Women Moving Millions? The same thing. I, I think uh, for me, I don't know a lot of other women that are very active in their philanthropy. And this is a whole group of women that are very active and it's great to be among a group of women with of like mind that we can share different experiences and work together and maybe not work together, but we all are coming from the same place. It's, it's, uh, you feel like you found your tribe or that's how I feel like. Yeah. 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 It's a, a very nurturing com- um, community too. That's how I felt, uh, when I first arrived and I felt forever appreciative of Ann Lovell to the one who introduced me. You know, I think that, um, uh, for many of us, uh, you know, it's kind of a solo, we feel like a, we're on a solo journey, you know, when we have this calling and we're um, doing work in a, at a level that, um, you know, some are not able to always identify with. And it can sometimes be a, a lonely journey. So I felt like I landed among, in a nest, you know, <laughs> of, of like birds. <laughs> so I, <laughs> no, I totally agree. And then you get to fly, right? <laughs> in a flock together. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had Margot. Yeah. Huh? Margot Francine was the woman that introduced me to Women Moving Millions. And it is. It, you feel like you're home and you get to be yes, together exactly. and, and move forward. It's 
wonderful. Yeah. You know, for our listeners who aren't familiar with um, Women Moving Million, it's an organization that I'd encourage you to look up. You can find it on the sylviaglobal.com website, but you can also Google Women Moving Millions, and you'll find that it's an organization of women who have committed um, $1 million or more to supporting the work of women and girls philanthropically around the world a very open community, and you'll hear more about it. But today our conversation is focused on Mary and the work that she's doing. Mary, you know, I knew that, you know, tell our audience about your wonderful, wonderful background and your childhood. Let's start from the beginning. <laughs> In the beginning. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning. Um, well, I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, and my parents, my birth parent um, gave me, or my mother gave me up for adoption um, at, at 11 days. And on the 11th day when she gave me up, my uh, mother that ended up adopting me when I was eight got me. And that's the Tidlin family. So um, I grew up in a household um, that uh, we had enough, but we never had um, more than enough. And uh, we had, my parents looked after 40 foster children, or 45 actually, as we grew up. So there was always children coming, mostly babies. My mom loved babies. She still does that at the age of 93. We had a lot of babies come and go in and out of our home. And I was one of the lucky kids that got to stay. And um, I was adopted when I was eight and uh, changed my name to Tidland. And I was, from there, I grew up in Calgary, went to university in Calgary. I found out that my birth father had gone to university and no one in our family had gone to university. And so I figured out if he could do it, I could do it. And uh, put my, I worked my way, <clears throat> supported myself through university and came out and um, got into oil and gas, which was our city in Calgary is an um, oil and gas center in Canada. And um, I started working as a landman. That's what they, my profession was. And I negotiated deals for a major national oil company. And after about five years of that, I stopped or I left. I found my birth parents um, where they were, and I went looking for them and took maybe six months off. And when I came back from that journey, which was very successful at finding them, that was my first trip. To How this. old were you at that point? I was when you um, connected. So I was. 27 at that point when I first met my birth mother and uh, she was not very far from the city that I lived in and then my birth father um, was from Ghana so that was why I left the the large national oil company I was working for. I just decided to take a leave of absence and go visit Ghana and see if I could uh, see what it would be like to be Ghanaian, half Ghanaian. My mother was Dutch. So I did that whole journey of traveling to Ghana, my first time into Africa, and um, I I call it by divine intervention. It certainly wasn't luck, or maybe it was luck, but I found someone that knew him in New York. So I met him, and my whole life, a whole another picture of my life unfolded where I was the first of eight um, children on my birth mother's side, and the first of uh, three on my birth father's side, and then I was raised in this Tidland family of five. So my I have an enormous family, 
And um, anyways, after that whole finding my roots. Wait, can I ask and, you, so, Mary, yeah. wait, can I ask you a couple questions around that sure. experience? Because sure. all all of this, you know, I'm I'm curious, you know, it would seem all of this would shape, you know, who you are today. It's a part of the ingredients that have gone into your life experience and the things that make you aware and, you know, on different levels. So when you did you have this knowing or this longing all of your life up to age 27 to want to find your birth parents or did it did something really trigger it deeply that sent you on the quest well i think um in my family i was the brown child of five kids and so when you're little and you you know people come up to you and say Where's your mom or who's your mom? And I say, there's my mom. And they say, they can't. That can't be your mother. You know, right from the get-go when you're very young, that something is. People are looking at you as if something's different, and I wasn't seeing it. And I think that stayed with me for a very long time. I really wanted to find out who my parents were. How did your um, your adoptive parents teach you to respond to that question? Um, we will, our family was like the United Nations. We had, I was brown, but I had a, I have a Ukrainian sister and a brother that's Greek. So we didn't really, our family, everyone was equal. Everyone was accepted and we all respected each other. And that's the way we were raised up, that there was no difference between people. There might be visual things that made people different, but basically we were all the same. So they taught me to just, when people say that, just to look at them and accept where they're at and um, know that my mother loved me uh, and my father from a very deep place, and that was not going to disrupt that. But there was still something inside of me that was really wondering who the people were that gave me up and why. You know, that's a part of the reason that I'm asking this question is because I also grew up in a very ethnically, I have a very ethnically diverse family. And when we're all together um, for holidays, which are coming up, and for birthdays and other occasions, uh, it's the most wonderful, colorful experience of personalities and foods and, uh, you know, just all the dimensions of a family and I find that that makes me um, more curious and accepting and non-judgmental of the outside appearances of family dynamics and you know a, a recent example was I was at the uh, an event for one of our nephews, and he was adopted by our brothers, and my brother's wife is Caucasian. Our, my brother and I are an African-American. And so um, he, this young man is, you know, to the rest of the world would appear to be white. And here am I, and his wife is African-American, and my sisters were there. And people kept saying, oh, so, you know, how do you know you know, Richard, and it's my nephew, and, you know, you get this kind of blank look on their face, and, and then you just kind of go on, because, you know, you're kind of like, yeah, I guess they would expect that. But then he is so comfortable from such a young age at identifying as, uh, you know, that 
I don't know why the rest of the world has such a hard time seeing it. Can't they see that we're all the mm-hmm. same? You know, mm-hmm. and, exactly. and so that's that's a part of you know my experience that's prompting some of these questions. So what happens, Mary? You know, when you connect with your when you find your mother and your father, did you have any idea that your mother was um, so close geographically? No, I had no idea. I had no idea. But it was amazing because she had kept a picture that I, when I was 19 years old, I'd won this Miss Black Alberta pageant. And she had kept the picture out of the paper. And she said that she thought she recognized herself in my face. Mm. But she didn't have enough courage to go look for me. So she, um, yeah, it was, it was, it surprised me that she was so close, and I was very thankful she was because I got to visit her quite a bit after that. It wasn't like she was in Holland the whole time. Yeah. And she was receptive to making contact with you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She um, she said, I healed the hole in her heart, so we have been mm-hmm. very close since then. Yeah, her and mm-hmm. her family. Have, I mean, I have six new siblings as of, yeah, from that whole experience, mm-hmm. and it's been great all the way around, yeah. How about your brother, I mean your father, excuse me? My father, he lived in New York, he passed away just a couple years ago, but I got to know him, it was different because I didn't see him as much, but I used to go visit him probably annually in New York, and um, he was, it was a great relationship, it was different because he um, was from Ghana and had lived in New York for most of his life. So he came, he had a different lens on life than I had as a Calgary girl growing up, growing up in Calgary. But he, in the family that I, that I family, in the family that I grew up in, but he had been across Canada and the U.S. So we had, it was great getting to know him and his perspective. And I mean, I, totally honored who he was because without him I would be here so I wanted to know a lot about him and Ghana and his life and I did get to learn a lot about that did you find Mary that as a child um that the the environment and your parents um that raised you influenced your philanthropy it would eventually have a part because they sound like they were incredibly giving people you know they have more than 45 foster care children you know would require a a very big bold heart you know on a daily basis you know yeah no they definitely they were there always for us playing with us whatever we wanted they were always part of we weren't just kids there we were part of a big family and um, mm-hmm. that that definitely shaped. I knew that at some point I would give back um, in my life something. I didn't know really what that was going to look like. I, I think when I was little, I thought I'd have you know a dozen kids or something, to because kind of a match picture to my mother. But as I grew older, I realized I wanted to go down the path of a career, and creating the foundation was a way of um, supporting other people that didn't have as much as I did. And that all came from being raised in the household I was, without a doubt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did you return to the oil business at any point? Um, oh, your, yeah. Your, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
I did after the the time period when I went and found my parents. I came back and started a consulting company and then ended up starting an oil company with three other partners that grew to over 250 people and we ended up uh, having drilling rigs and trucking fleets but we our main focus was we were an exploration team we found new oil so that's how I got back into oil and gas was to start up on on my own with a very small team of people yeah is that the time when you were the only woman of color to be the president and the CEO of an oil company in Canada? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. This is, you're so humble. I love it. You know, this show is about, you know, you know, successful women and success and wealth being defined in, you know, in its multiple dimensions. But, you know, and who are gracious and humble leaders, you know, and Mary, you exemplify what Sylvia Global's broadcast is about. You're such a humble, gracious, um, well-accomplished, you know, lady, and I think that reflects, you know, often the hearts of philanthropists. You know, not necessarily all, but especially women philanthropists, you know, our motivations come, are driven from our purpose and our passion, you know, which stem from our heart. So talk to us about Williston Wildcatters Oil, just so you know a little bit and, you know, some of the experiences that you had in that capacity that eventually influenced your charity as well. Um, well, it was we were a, a unique organization in Canada because we were exploration and service. And not only that, but we moved our head office out into a small area in Saskatchewan our coal of Saskatchewan, actually, and it was a town of about 500 people, but it had beautiful historical buildings, um, courthouses and opera houses, and we bought these buildings up for not a lot of money and renovated them back into their original state and used them as office space instead of being in a city and paying a lot of high overhead. So when we were in this small town, um, I... We community development started because when you're in a small town like that and you're operating an oil and gas company, all, most of our export, our oil production was out of that area. And we were also pioneering a new type of technology of drilling called horizontal drilling that now is like a very common word, but at the time no one was doing it. So we had... We were unique in that we were out in the middle of nowhere um, trying a new technology with our own equipment and we had to build up the community to provide those services. So we would bring people in. The people that the local people were amazingly loyal and very, very had lots of common sense and were smart. And so we were able to engage them in learning more and becoming some ama- an amazing team of geologists, engineers, um, field people, production engineers, um, accountants. We would fly experts in from the city, Calgary, and have them train these people. And so we built the community up that way, and, and I had a lot of other businesses, art galleries and clothing stores and things, and I did that because I had so much free time outside of work. Um, I also learned to fly. But those those things pulled our community together, and I learned how to people worked in teams and how to motivate people and I think that that model I've basically taken or in different places in the world and been able to engage communities and people and learn how to empower them 
so that they can run with their own skills. And that all came from having a small oil company in the middle of Saskatchewan um, and just being able to work with what we had at the time. Talk to us about what happened in, you know, 1995 and how you recover from loss, because I think that's uh, another part of the experience of being a leader and being successful in business is that people only see um, the successes and we, you know, a part of that, you know, that lonely part of the journey sometime is how privately we have to deal with the losses, you know, or the um, the disappointments. You know, how did you handle that? Um, it was hard. It was really hard. So our company, when oil went down to about $15 a barrel, we had so much capital equipment, We it took us down. So we, our company went into bankruptcy. And, um, you know, this was our baby, and I, we had built it up from nothing. So I took it quite, like, personally, and... I was a wounded warrior for a while. I, you know, went through the loss of identity. It was a painful experience in many, many ways at the time. But when I look back now, I'm very thankful because I would probably still be doing the same thing if it hadn't happened. And uh, my way, my my choice out of that was, and I was trekking around the world at the time. I I like trekking in mountain ranges, and that was sort of how I healed myself. And I kept seeing these communities that had you know, basically so much less than what we have in Canada. And I thought, oh, I could, I knew I could do something for them. And so I, and I kept meeting, meeting people along the way. And a lot of those original people became our partners in uh, many of the programs that we have internationally when I started the foundation. So when you said um, you felt like, you know, you went through the familiar places of a, being a wounded warrior, you know, and loss <laughs> of identity. How did, you know, how does, how did, what role did faith, you know, F-A-I-T-H, play throughout this part of your life experience and even in the earlier years? Because the second half of this conversation, we're going to be completely on the philanthropy side. So I just want our audience to really get, you know, a good introduction to who you are and, you know, how your work has evolved and why um, these skill sets transfer over into other areas of your life. Mm-hmm. Well, there, I guess, uh, I always believe there's something much bigger than me that's operating with me, definitely, if you want to call it God or whatever religion anyone is um, is part of their life, it's not just me and my brain power that's ha- that's operating here. Sometimes I just feel like a vessel, and <laughs> if I just stay out of the way with my own ideas, um, things just flow for for me and what we do. So that was a huge part in sort of putting my pieces of myself back together the way I did and just realizing that I am about people. I love people and I love to find out what makes people tick. And the way to do that is to just listen and empower people. And that that all comes from, I think, a much bigger place than my, like I said, my little brain power. You have to be, you have to realize, or I realize I'm connected to something much bigger. And I think the way that we've been able to take our work around the world is definitely uh, part of a much bigger picture than just me. 
and I'm not really in control. Mm-hmm. You said, and I'm not really what? In control. <laughs> we all think we're in control of our lives? Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, I had a guest on the other day, you, you know, used the expression, uh, you know, women make plans and then God laughs. <laughs> you know? uh, he just, he, he, there's a way that it gets done beyond ourselves. But, you know, there's a quote that uh, I think speaks to your faith and to who you are. You know, you said that when you allow, when you allow yourself to have the luxury of expanding your heart, it's one of the richest things in the world. And, you know, after this brief commercial break, I want to come back and talk about the expansion of your heart and your philanthropy in greater detail. This is Gail Sylvia, and you're listening to sylviaglobal.com radio here on Contact Radio. And we'd love for you to call in and talk to Mary. Uh, we This broadcast can also be heard on sylviaglobal.com. You'll find Mary under philanthropy and also under business and leadership. Where Our programs are geared to support and encourage uh, women of all levels around the globe to find that to give them the luxury and the comfort of being able to expand their heart to do greater things on behalf of others. Follow us on Twitter at Sylvia Global, like us on Facebook, and also check out more programs here on Contact Talk Radio. Mary, the foundation, yes. you know, the expansion of your own heart. You now take it to a new place. So as you're I, how does your identity start to change and move you into a direction of philanthropy after, you know, being a wounded warrior? You know? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I, yeah, this is taking me back. I think at the time my my identity changed because I – First, when I found I founded the foundation, so I'm an entrepreneur by background, so it was wasn't a big thing to found the found the or put the foundation together. But one of the first things we did was we we got into a lot of alternative healing modalities, and I think that's probably because I needed it at the time. But we did a lot for cancer patients, and we put on retreats and things. And so my identity started changing toward you know going from oil and gas, and no one really believed that I would be able to raise, because we raise a lot of money in Canada. We're a public foundation. That I would be able to raise money, you know, go from raising money from an oil and gas company into into a charity because they didn't think I would stay in it. They thought I would go back into oil and gas because it's a very kind of addictive business. And um, it was really hard to stay with what my heart was pulling me towards, which was all about supporting others in their journey, whether that was through health, or education, and as we started getting the momentum of working internationally, we did medical trips in the Amazon, in Peru, and in Ecuador right off the bat, and in India, and uh, then after a while, people started believing that I was going, I was going to stay where I was, and especially if they were involved and engaged in what we were doing, they knew it was, it was, it was real, and we were going to continue, but for me, it was a huge mindset to believe I was actually going where I was going to keep following what was pulling me, but also for our donors and our volunteers and people that had got engaged with us. They were, you know, when you when you jump that bridge that big from business into philanthropy, 
especially back then, so this was quite a few years ago, you just didn't see it happen very often. So it was, I had to trust myself and people had to trust me. And it was, it was difficult at times because um, when you're used to a familiar pattern from business and you're moving out of that, it, um, you just have to trust. And yeah, you get challenged in that trust. So it was, but over time, that identity kept getting more and more solid in itself. Well, and in, give us in some examples. Give us some examples of the challenges with the trust, you know, in developing and for people believing that, you know, and trusting your decision and your capability. Uh, you know, can you just speak to that briefly? Um, well, I think one thing is to do international work is a huge... Back then, there's a lot of people doing international philanthropy now, but there wasn't in the way that we're doing it then. And so to be able to go into different parts of the world is really hard. It was really hard before all the visuals came in um, that you see on TV. Before that was there, people couldn't understand how you could just go to another place in the world and start working and have an impact. That was beyond a lot of people's comprehension. And, you know, when I come back and after we did it, we'd say we were doing it and we'd get so many questions about how we did it. It was that trust thing. You'd think, well, how come you just don't believe me? Because here's, you know, we we were actually doing it. We had all kinds of evidence. But, um, yeah, it was, there was a period of time. It was a shift to get people to believe it and to really be solid in where we were. But we just kept going, and it got stronger. But I hope that answers your question. Who's That's we? Kind of, yes, yes. Um, Who is our board. We? So I always say we because this is just this is not done by myself. We have a board of directors. Violet, Doctor Violet Shad, was one of the doctors that was that came with me on a lot of our medical missions, and we kept building those. And another, you know, another members of the board were very key in sort of supporting what we were doing, along with our donors and the volunteers. So it's a team that does all of this. Yeah. Why a charitable trust, uh, excuse me, a charitable foundation? Uh, two parts. One foundation is because part was fun, some of the funds that I had, and second of all was charitable so we could raise money across Canada. So it was a mixture of the two. And we could participate in our program. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And we could participate in our program. So it was very important that we weren't just writing checks to different programs. We were writing checks, but we were participating in what we were doing, too. Was it uh, was the, the process of setting up the foundation and learning about the world of big and bold philanthropy, uh, where did you get introduced to that concept versus just writing the check, or did they kind of evolve? No, there is two parts to it. I have a aunt that I met uh, you know, on my birth side in Holland that had had a foundation, and she told me a little bit about how she had run her foundation, and it was all about she participated in gathering funds and putting them together, and this was for the restoration of historical homes in Holland. And then a friend of mine in Calgary, Colin Glasgow, has a charitable foundation, and he worked in Zambia. And I talked to him extensively about how he did things. And and so those two people had a big impact on me in how I set it up and to go globally 
You, and this is on your birth mother's side, correct? Exactly, yeah. So I'm kind of curious. I'm curious about that part because you know, we create legacies intentionally or unintentionally. You know, we all leave a footprint uh, that that connects us with others. And sometimes it seems to me, in various ways, it's almost woven into our DNA. You know, without us being aware of it. So you have a philanthropic legacy and a a philanthropic foundation legacy that you at birth, but you're disconnected initially from even knowing or being aware of that. However, you're, the intersection happens, you know, later in life, and you learn about that. How did you ever ponder the how amazing that truth is? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I've pondered that, especially in the business side, because in my family that I grew up with, that I was adopted into, there was no business. But in my birth family's mother's side, the Dutch side, there's lots of business and banking. So where did I get that uh, other than through some DNA, <laughs> right? So I definitely... Yeah, it's really... Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I feel very blessed so... that I've been able to have the combination of the two. I've had the the philanthropy of the heart from the Tidlin Foundation, and then this other genetic side that came through later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you get to blend both all of these worlds together. All of these worlds blend together um, or in, are integrated into <laughs> one human being known as Mary Tidlin. How about your siblings? Are any of them as business um savvy and philanthropic as you are? Um, there's not not a lot of them are philanthropic um, in the way that I have gone. Uh, business-wise, yes, I have family members in uh, on the Tidland side that are successful entrepreneurs and also on my birth side. So, yes, that is around me. Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know that even that's kind of intriguing to me, Mary, because I think when I meet such generous people like yourself and uh, who are philanthropic and very strategic in assuring a le- a philanthropic legacy, I ponder privately why others you know I guess I just assume everybody is <laughs> you know when the truth is everyone is not, uh, you know, as giving. And it does not come as naturally um, for others as it may appear to come for some. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I have learned not to judge that uh, over time. It's the same with donors, I know. Um, Whether it's family or donors or volunteers, people... All, everyone has a different story, and everyone comes from different places, and I respect that. And if mm-hmm. they want to join us, that's great, and if they don't, that's fine, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, this is, a, I think, a very important lesson, too, is that it doesn't sound, Mary, to me like throughout your life experience that judgment and questioning around criticism you know, was allowed, you made choices not to allow that to seep into your, into your heart and into your, 
you know, the work that you do and your decisions that you make for your love for other people, is that a part of your personal philosophy? Absolutely, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a conscious choice. Um, I find that uh, that I've had to make as well is that it's, I find it much more rewarding to give from a place of genuine love and concern. And in order to do that, not just monetarily, but to really do that, it's to be able to accept and know that everyone may not understand, everyone may not agree. You know, there may be people who question it, but that doesn't deter me from being able to give and receive love toward them as well, you know, and to just keep moving, <laughs> just keep going. Especially when you're being drawn, you know, called to do something, you know, that uh, the philanthropy comes from the heart at every moment and minute in our life with every person we encounter. And it's a conscious choice and it becomes an unconscious act when I allow myself to just love genuinely um, everyone from where they are, even if I don't accept or agree with philosophies or behavior, but to be able to, you know, to give from the heart, be, it goes beyond just giving from, you know, the money. It's, it is um, a conscious choice that we make with every person we encounter. Absolutely. And then it infiltrates in um, your life in every decision. Yeah. So now the work has begun. You're raising money. And what was your first gift um, from the... Mary A. Titlin Charitable Foundation. Who were the beneficiaries beyond yourself? You know, uh, because really the biggest joy comes from being able to, you know, to participate in the beauty uh, of the work. You know, and that what what was described. You, I've heard you describe as unharnessed joy. You know, it's not based on material wealth. It's just being able to engage in in caring and working side-by-side side with others for the good of other human beings. What was the first experience in the formal capacity of the Mary A. Titlin Charitable Foundation? <laughs> well, the first opportunity was in India, and it was uh, with Operation EyeSight. We had done a, we had funded some cataract operations in the northern part of India, in a fairly remote area called Palampur. And we went and witnessed the eye operations. And so I'm a visual learner. So I went by going and watching how the whole process operated. We came home, and it was very, it was very. I mean, India. If you've never been to India, is um, it's a fascinating experience. But it's a pull on every single sense that you have. And when I came home, we I settled from that, and then I spoke to the doctor. Um, Violet Shad that's on our board, and we started doing these medical programs in the Amazon in the same kind of small format um, so that we could build on those. So it was a very um, it was a very important trip, our very first one, because it taught me so much about how we could deliver medical uh, programs in remote areas. What about the trip? Um, how long were you there? Uh, we were there for a very, sh- like, a, I think we were there for a week or two when we watched the local doctors giving the cataract operations, and then we traveled through India quite a bit. But um, the impact of watching the people who would 
never have had the opportunity to have their eyesight changed, especially the older. Mm-hmm. Most of the people there were older mm-hmm. and they'd come from along. The impact of that when you've never done it before, well, it just knocks your socks off that. And all we did was write a check to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So you, did you come home the same person that you left um, Canada as after an experience like that? Oh, I was revved, yeah. I mean, it opens up your, I would say I was a different person because it opened up my mind, all the windows in my mind to all kinds of other opportunities. And uh, it. I was revved. I was ready to go. I knew now how to formulate these medical programs and all I needed to do was go engage other people in my ideas. So, yeah, it was it was great. So I know you've, you've, how many trips have you made um, so far and how many, you know, as an estimate, how many people has the Mary A. Titlin Charitable Foundation been able to touch? Oh, my. <laughs> well, we're in, we operate. It's <laughs> not a trick question. I know, for, I know as an example, in Tanzania alone, one trip in Tanzania, you had a team of 16 doctors, nurses, and volunteers with you. And that team saw more than 2,000 women and children in clinics. And there you conducted health screenings and did workshops on reproductive health and dental hygiene. You know, your foundation provides scholarships, you know, to help educate women around the world, and funds have been used to restore schools and orphanages, equip medical clinics, deliver water, community development. You know, there's a lot of lives that you uh, have been able to touch, which creates a new legacy stemming from your experiences starting at birth. Definitely. Well, it's a. I, I've never. We've we've tried to um, account for the number of people that we've been able to touch or impact. And it's it's when you look at when you touch families, it's not just the mother. It's her five kids and the surrounding families. So when you look at all, we're in 24 different countries, and we've gone to many of those countries numerous times and funded programs in those countries, many programs. It's it's over a million people over time that we've been able to impact with the dollars that we've been able to put to our work and the volunteers that have been engaged, which are, oh, there's hundreds or thousands of volunteers that we've been able to engage over the last 14 years. And this would be our 15th anniversary this year, this month, actually, yeah. Well, this month, congratulations, Mary. The people, how did you build your team? How did you go about identifying and recruiting members of your, the infrastructure of your foundation and that the team that designs and implements this work? Uh, The same way we find partners was through values. Um, The main thing is through values is to find people that are respectful of each other and want to empower each other. And are from being from having a lot of different boards in business, uh, finding people that are effective in putting action into, are putting thoughts and ideas into action, and so that's how we've been able to find people across Canada and the U.S. But it's usually come through word of mouth how we've made those 
contacts is through another person somehow we've met and it's been a great fit for our board or for our volunteer teams or for uh, partnerships around the world. Mary, what advice would you give to the 27-year-old who aspires to create their own charitable foundation one day? Believe you can do it and just do it. You know, I find that a lot of people talk about what they want to do, especially at the age of when you're young, and other people will try and talk you out of it because it doesn't make sense in their world. But if it's something you really want to do and you feel passionate about, do it. It's not that difficult to put a, a foundation together, a board, and then follow your passion. Because when you have passion, other people get engaged in your passion with you. What would you do differently? I don't know if I would do much differently because I have, uh, I mean, I was a newbie at philanthropy when I started and I learned as I went along. I I would definitely say I was no expert walking into it. So if I, I guess maybe if I would have done something a little differently, I might have taken some um, courses at the very beginning. I don't believe, yeah, because I had the business background, so maybe I did go to the Cody Institute in Nova Scotia and studied sustainable international development uh, a couple years ago. And a lot of the information that I got there, was a, I was able to fine-tune what we, how we operate. So maybe if I would have had those courses earlier, it would have um, helped formulate our structure quicker or faster. I don't know. Yeah. Mary, what advice would you give to people that want to join and support you in your work? How can they contact you and participate in your effort? Uh, They can always contact us through our website, which is www.tidlandfoundation.com, T-I-D-L-U-N-D, foundation.com. And I just encourage them to to come along. And if they're – people can join us through many different ways, through funding or through volunteer work, um, just to start and get the, to feel and to get an idea of what we're all about. But I encourage, if this, you know, if, if somehow this is touching anyone, I encourage you to do it. Life's short. We have uh, we have a few more minutes, Mary, so I'd like to continue to ask you some additional questions, and then right before we go off the air, I want to give you an opportunity to share the contact information again okay. with the listeners. What experience in your journeys, um, especially the work that you're doing through your foundation, what experiences have just made a, the, a, a burned a lasting impression upon your memory and your heart? In the foundation side? You know, when you've gone out into the field to actually touch the lives of the people on the ground, you know, is there someone you encountered, a child, a, you know, you mentioned the, the, you know, seeing someone gain sight after not having sight. You know, that would be very powerful to know that you had a part of bringing such joy to someone's life. Have there been, are there other experiences like that that stand out for you? 
Oh, there's so many. There's, you know, walking in IDP camps in Northern Gulu with kids. Um, what is holding, an IDP camp? Uh, inter, uh, kid, families that have been displaced or people that have been displaced out of their home because of war and they're put into camps to live. That's where they live. Um, and we walked through one of those camps and it was amazing how the kids, just walk up and hold your hand. Out of nowhere, kids will walk up and hold your hand, and then kids will hold their hands. And then all of a sudden, we have a whole chain. Yeah, yeah. You know, we experienced something similar um, with our um, charity in Guatemala and in um, Nogales, Mexico. You know, when to know that there's this, again, unharnessed, joy and love for life in circumstances that to other parts of the world look so harsh, you know, and uh, would cause many to just lose sleep and to cringe. But then here's this joy and this freedom to be able to hold your, the hand of a stranger and to skip alongside of you and, um, you know, just be open to receiving. I think that that type of experience becomes addictive in and of itself, you know, to be loved so unconditionally, yeah. you know? Absolutely, and yeah. I think that that is the biggest transformative piece for people from North America to get involved in volunteer work internationally is to experience that, experience that unharnessed joy that exists with people that have nothing or very, very little materially and it just doesn't fit in our minds. And when you come home, it it transforms how you look at life. And I yeah, think that it is does. it does. And I think for me, that's one of the most important things about the transformation and the work that we do on the ground. Is amazing to watch people have their life changed by just something that we're participating in. But it's also about the people from North America and Europe that come with us and watching their lives change because of what just an engagement on a very, very simple way in another part of the world can change a perspective so deeply. How do you answer the question, Mary, uh, you know, when there is so much need domestically, why go overseas? I've, I, in my world, everyone's the same, and for me, I can mm-hmm. stretch a dollar. I can stretch a dollar a, a lot further internationally than I can at home. And there's less people doing things, especially on the level that we are in remote communities internationally, than there is at home. It's harder in many ways, um, but I, the basics is people are people. We're all connected here. So whether it's at home, and we do things at home in North America too, some of our programs are here. But definitely we have excelled in um, executing programs and delivering programs internationally. How much would you estimate your annual giving is? Um, we're Every year we give anywhere from half a million to $700,000 a year out to various programs around the world, yeah. How many applications do people, how many applications do you receive, or is it an application process? Uh, yes, it is an application process, but we have, and, and we receive a lot. I can't even, I haven't counted them to give you a number, but there's many that we have to turn down and, 
it's we can only do a little bit here and there and i've never ever claimed that i could save the world or save anyone everyone has to save themselves but we can do a little bit here and a little bit there and uh and and have the quality of doing it or operating the way we do what types of fundraising do you do that allows others to participate in making these gifts um we have fundraise um your we have golf tournaments we um have small gatherings dinners in various places various homes and we but the majority of our funds are raised on one to one meetings one on one meetings with individuals or other foundations okay and of course we always and have our website <laughs> Do you get a lot of contributions from individuals? Yes, our 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 contributions if you looked at a pie, um I think 45% is from individuals and 35% is from foundations and we have 2 or 4% from uh the government. Oh, from the government. And how does the who does this for you? Do you have a development director, or is there a team of volunteers that you know pursue the the funding on your behalf? Uh, no, I in the past um, we have when we have fundraisers, it's definitely a group effort. But in over the period of time that we've come to where we are now, I've been raising most of the money. Um, along with, like I said, the fundraisers we have, which engages a lot of other people. Um, and we have an online uh, system where we can go on our website and donate online. But uh, to date, and we're bringing other people to learn how to raise money. That was my my uh, skill before in oil and gas. I've just transferred it into the charity, but definitely for sustainability, we need other people doing it, a lot of other people besides me, so... Well, Mary, any final thoughts that you would like to share with our audience uh, on any of your life experiences? Um, I think the first, the only thing that really pops into my mind um, that I've learned and I think is one of the most valuable lessons in life is everyone has a story, and until you know that story, it's not really fair to judge anyone. So just wait and listen and observe and and uh, then make some conclusions about someone rather than jumping in from our stereotypes or whatever we learn through the media. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. one of yeah. the most important things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell the, our listeners again, Mary, how they can um, contact and support you. Okay. Um, www.tidlandfoundation.com, T-I-D-L-U-N-D, foundation.com is our website, and uh, we'd be happy to uh, have emails from anyone and we'll respond in a quick manner, for sure. Mary A. Titlin Charitable Foundation, Representative Mary A. Titlin, thank you so much, Mary, for joining us today here on Sylvia Global and sharing your story and your compassionate heart with all of us. God bless you, and have a good Thanksgiving. Thank you. You've been listening to Sylvia Global with your host, Gail Sylvia. Become a subscriber to Sylvia Global for unique listener opportunities. Follow on Twitter and like them on Facebook. 
For more information, go to www.sylviaglobal.com. That's Sylvia, S-Y-L-V-I-A, Global, G-L-O-B-A-L.com. 